Yeah, the engine started making a really horrendous noise. We were about 1,500, and the, the first thought I had was, am I going to be okay waving him off? I knew I could get back to the airport, but I was really concerned about the, the guy behind me and making sure that he was going to be okay. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 84. Thank you for joining us for another soaring adventure. Happy to bring you another great guest pilot here on the podcast. But first, I would like to thank Robert Plascato, our newest Patreon pilot. Also, a big thank you to all of our current Patreon pilots who continue to financially support the show so we can continue to bring you great soaring content. If you'd like to help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash soaringthesky. You can also go to our website for other ways to help us out financially at soaringthesky.com. While you are there, you can sign up for our brand new newsletter. You can also find a link in the show notes. If you can't help us out financially, you can still help us out greatly by hitting that subscribe button and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization located in the high desert of Los Angeles, California. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Scotty Ashton is president and CEO of Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems, based in Bonita Springs, Florida. Scott is an aerospace industry executive with more than 25 years of experience in engineering, sales and marketing, and executive roles. He has extensive experience in aircraft sales, operating business aircraft, and helicopter charter operations and MRO operations. He has served as president of the Connecticut Soaring Association and also president of New England Air Museum, based in Hartford, Connecticut. Scott also currently serves on the board of Patient Airlift Services, a charitable organization that arranges private air transportation at no cost for individuals requiring diagnosis, treatment or follow-up, and for humanitarian purposes. Mr. Ashton is an ATP-rated pilot with ratings for airplanes, gliders, and helicopters, and is a certificated flight instructor with more than 2,700 hours of flight. Scott's education includes a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Worcester Polytechnic Institute, a Master's in Engineering from the University of Hartford, and an MBA from Lolly School of Business at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Scott and his wife have three grown children and live in Naples, Florida. Later on the show, author and glider pilot Dale Masters joins us for another short story on Soaring Tales with Dale. This one is titled Spacewalk. For our Just Soaring Tips and Techniques segment, we catch up with glider pilot Dennis Lanigan as he shares with us what it's like flying the ridges of the Appalachians to big thermals west of the Mississippi and mountain wave and convergence in California. For our AROC Soaring Safety segment, we hear from glider pilot Keith Schwab about incident and accident reports. All this now on episode 84 of Soaring the Sky. Scott Ashton, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you today. How are you? I'm fantastic, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to our discussion. 
So I, like I ask everybody, I do want to hear when your aviation adventure got started. And later on, we're going to talk about a venture that you're doing right now that you've just got into. But before I get ahead of myself, how did your aviation adventure start? Uh, it was the classic aviation story. I started when I was 17 at our local airport. Uh, soloed just about the same time I got my driver's license, got my, got my private pilot uh, senior year in high school. And uh, I've been flying ever since, and aviation is really the only thing I know how to do. So uh, it, it's been my, my passion, my livelihood, and, and just what I do. Now that was powered? Uh, that was powered, yep. So I you know, soloed in a Cessna 152 at Meriden Markham Airport in Connecticut and uh, uh, flew powered Probably up until about 10 years ago, um, always loved the grace and, and, and beauty of gliders and uh, took some, some demo rides down in uh, Elmira and, and a couple of uh, you know, local glider ports, but never really focused on getting my glider license uh, until about 10 years ago and joined the Connecticut Soaring Association, which is a great club in, in uh, northwest, uh, northeastern Connecticut, and I got my private glider, then got my commercial, and then eventually my glider add-on for my CFI. And then became president of the club. So I ran the club for a couple of years too, and, a, and became a tow pilot. So I really, I guess, yeah, I guess when you think about it, I, I really went uh, went all in on the gliders uh, at the soaring club up there. So when you had the interest, did you start searching for a glider club? Yeah, you know, I joined SSA and, uh, and you know, they've got that great club locator and CSA was, you know, it was about an hour away and so I went up there and they were great. It was a great group of people, kind of a small club and got started right away. Went through the training curriculum. At the time we had one 233 and a, and a 126 and a Pawnee tow plane. Went and got my commercial so I could do rides and get paid to fly a little bit. And then I already had my CFI. So my CFI G was a natural and, and did that in pretty short order. And then I started flying the Pawnee and, and started towing and eventually became president of the, of the club and ran, ran the club for a couple of years and put together, well, we had a great group of people, mechanics and instructors and tow pilots, and the club really grew and, and did a lot of, lot of rides and introduced a lot of people to the sport of soaring and got a lot of people their glider license. It was, uh, it was a great experience and the club continues now and, and they're doing great. Now, we were talking earlier, you caught my attention because... You love to fly gliders, but you said something, and what you said was, I love to tow. I love to tow. When, and whenever, you know, I've flown a lot of different airplanes and helicopters. I'm rated in helicopters. I got about 300 and, 350 hours of helicopter time, which, which I love. But given if everything I was sitting on the ramp, I strapped me in a Pawnee and, and let me tow gliders all day long. And boy, that I just love that. Now, glider pilots love to hear that, you know, because... It, it's not that <laughs> it's not that the that the tow pilots I've run into hated to tow, but you know a lot of them do fly gliders as well. So they're kind of like, well, I'd really like to fly a glider a little bit. Can you tow next time? It was just funny when you said I love to tow. I just wasn't expecting to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I love the Pawnee. You know, I, I just uh, I I really enjoy the single seat airplane and. I like, you know, what I like is I like the op tempo. I like, that's just my nature. I'm total type A. I, I like to bring a glider up, chop the power, you know, 60 degree bank and, and get that airplane down and, and load up the next one and, and just keep going. And that's my favorite kind of day when, when you're just, you're just up and down, up and down, up and down. 
Yeah, I just, I, I really enjoy it. I, I, yeah, I'm not sure I can really explain it beyond that. I just, I really love, love to tell. Well, as glider pilots, we appreciate that. Yeah, my, my favorite shirt I saw was, if I don't tow, you don't go. <laughs> I like it. That's good. <laughs> I, I, I like that. I like that. I, I, for sure, I saw somebody, I saw somebody with a t-shirt that said that. And I'm like, oh, I got to get one of those. Now, I have to ask you, because you do some towing, have you ever had a mm-hmm. kind of a scary experience that, you know, you were able to get out of, but when you were towing a glider? Um, I had one experience where we had cracked an exhaust manifold uh, and, and yeah, the engine started making a, a really horrendous noise and we were about 1500 and, you know, the, the, the first thought I had was, am I going to be okay waving him off? That responsibility, that, that was a little, I, I knew I could get back to the airport, but I was really concerned about the, the, the guy behind me and making sure that he was going to be okay. And, and he was, and I waved him off and, and everybody got back, but that reflex just popped right into my head. And I know we're, we're taught and all my training, you know, if you lose an engine or whatever, it's kind of every man for himself. But that was the first thought that popped into my head was, is he going to be okay if I, if I release him here? But that was it. You know, everything else has been pretty good. Uh, you know, you can always tell when you have a student on the back and they're boxing in the wake. And, and then you can tell when you have a real pro who is also a tow pilot in tow because he'll hang off to the left a little bit and help you with a little bit of, you know, a little bit of left rudder for you. But uh, no, I, I, I haven't had anything that's, that's really kind of gotten my attention other, other than that. It's been, it's been a great experience. When you are in the glider, what do you like to fly? I haven't really gotten a a broad range of glider experience. So I haven't really soared, done a lot of soaring out west. It's really been kind of sled rides in the in the 126 and the, and the 233. And I did transition to a 134 that, that we bought as part of the club when I was there up at Connecticut Soaring Association. Uh, and then I just uh, transitioned to Tampa Bay soaring. I, I, I started flying the ASK-21. So, I mean, I do like the ASK-21, but uh, I really do like the 134 and the 126. Uh, you know, of, of everything that I've flown so far, those are my those are my kind of go-to gliders. But you know, eventually, I want to start flying more of the high-performance glass ships. And and you know, I met the the new president of STEMI, and definitely want to go get a ride in in one of those. And you know, fly some of the uh, uh, you know the ASH20 and and make my way up now that I'm down here in Florida and a little bit better soaring conditions than we had up in Connecticut. Yeah. Don't, don't, uh, tease me too much. I'm in a snowstorm right now. <laughs> I won't tell you about my view out the back when I <laughs> watching the sunset. Oh my. Okay. We, we better move on <laughs> before I get too depressed. <laughs> we have a mutual friend. Um, actually that's how we got connected, but Bruno Vassal had mentioned you mm-hmm. to me and I'd been wanting to talk about hypoxia on the podcast. We haven't really touched too much on that, but some of the misconceptions of it. And so you have a connection to oxygen. And if you could tell me about that. Yeah, sure. So back in April, I had an opportunity to purchase a company down here in Florida called uh, Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. It was a great fit for me. I'm an engineer by background, and, and I've run businesses. I've run several aviation businesses. We had a home in Naples, Florida. So when it all came together, it was a, it was a great fit. Uh, although it was right in the middle of the COVID pandemic, uh, with the you know with the financial crisis just kind of getting underway and before the recovery, so it was a little bit of a scary time. But you know, I literally packed up my car one day and told my wife, "Hey, I'll see you on the other side." and 
came down here and did all the due diligence uh, and put the deal together. And we closed April 30th and we've been running the company ever since. So yeah, I have a, I have a pretty strong connection to Oxygen now. So you supply the aviation community with systems? We supply the aviation community with oxygen systems for uh, a range of applications. We've got walk-around portables. Uh, we've got uh, portables that you you know strap into an aircraft uh, or or a glider. Uh, we've got installed systems, so we're on we're being certified right now on a on a Part 27 aircraft, and we're in a number of Part 23 airplanes, uh, both here in the U.S. and and in Europe. Masks. We've got TSO, uh, actual real TSO uh, approved masks uh, that uh, both constant flow and diluter demand certified up to 40,000 feet. So it's a pretty broad product line, but we are oxygen. All of our products are focused around supplying oxygen to the pilot community. And, you know, we consider the, the pilot to be our customer and we're doing everything we can to enhance aviation safety. And along with that is raising awareness about hypoxia for pilots. So speaking of just your average pilot, you know, you're having a chat with and oxygen comes up and he says, you know, I don't really go that far. I don't go that high. I don't really need oxygen. What would you tell him? He's wrong. Uh, (laughs) So as student pilots, or I'm a flight instructor. And so when I'm teaching a student, you know, we are all very focused on 91211, which is the oxygen regulation, which we can all recite rotely, which is you need oxygen above 12,500 for that period of time that you're above that altitude for more than 30 minutes. And then 14,000, you need it continuously. And above 15,000, it's got to be provided to your passengers. So that's the regulation. But the reality is that the physiology is what really should dictate to you whether or not you use oxygen. So I continually now, more out of curiosity, whenever a friend of mine is going on a cross country or whatever, I ask them if, they're, if they've got oxygen. And um, they're like, oh, no, no, I'm staying, I'm staying below 12.5. I'm staying below 12.5. And you know, I kind of pull them aside and say, hey, that's, that's not really the objective. This is one of the instances where being legal is not necessarily being safe. And the reason for that is that when you look at the physiology of hypoxia and, and altitude, uh, altitude susceptibility, your SpO2, which is the oxygen level in your blood, can go below 90% as altitudes as low as 8,000 feet. So the reality is, if you really don't want to be flying impaired, you really should be using oxygen or considering the use of oxygen anytime you're above eight to 10,000 And in fact, the reality is like if you're on a 135 operation flying a caravan, an unpressurized aircraft, if you're above 10,000, you have to use oxygen uh, instead of 12.5. So the FAA lowers that altitude for 135 pilots by, you know, by 2,500 feet. And just because we can do it part 91 doesn't mean we should. Yeah, absolutely. You were telling me earlier that um, I believe you were talking to someone and they were on a longer flight, but they weren't concerned because they weren't, they said they weren't going to get above 12.5. Yeah. And and that's, what's unfortunate is that we've kind of taught the law of primacy, right? We all learn this as students. We learn that regulation, uh, 91.211. And and we believe that that regulation keeps us safe and, and it really doesn't. And, you know, the key to all of this is pulse oximetry. It's really important to close the loop on pulse oximetry. And that's really when you should be using oxygen is when your body tells you you should. So, 
you know, every pilot should have a pulse oximeter in their flight bag. Every pilot should be using it when they're up at altitude. And when their pulse oximetry goes below that 90% threshold, they, they really need to be considering the use of oxygen. So this is something they could have in the cockpit with not necessarily having oxygen, but just a warning to let them know, hey, I need to get down. Yeah. And, and I mean, look, Chuck, pulse oximetry now is so ubiquitous, right? I mean, the new Apple Watch has it. I've got a, I've got a Garmin fitness watch that, that, that's got pulse oximetry on it. You can buy pulse oximeters you know, at, at, at your local drugstore. Um, we sell a pulse, oximeter, a pulse oximeter that works with our partner, Ithra, uh, which, which uh, sh- has the pulse oximetry right up on your cell phone. So you can monitor it in real time right on your phone and, and track it. There's no, there's no reason not to have a pulse oximeter on board your aircraft. And it just really gives you a, a great insight as to what's going on with your body. Yeah, because when that starts happening, you're probably not going to know. No, and, and the interesting thing is that hypoxia is so insidious that you could be suffering from it and be impaired and, and really not even realize it. And uh, there's a YouTube audio of an incident. It wasn't an accident, but it was an incident with a called Cleta 66, which was a Lear 35 uh, out in the Midwest. And they had, they had a door seal that was leaking, and they were up at altitude. I think they were in the mid-30s. So they had, they had a hypoxic event, and you know, the captain, you know, basically said, hey, I can't control the heading. I can't control the altitude. I can't control the airspeed. But other than that, everything's A-OK. That's exactly what he said. Other than that, everything is A-OK. So, oh, know, wow. He, he, yeah. So, so they literally had no control of the aircraft uh, because the co-pilot kept shutting off the autopilot because he was slumped over. He didn't realize it. And then, you know, you could hear that you could hear their speech as they're up at altitude. And then the, the controller, who actually won an award for saving this crew, got him down to 11,000 feet. And the co-pilot woke up and came on the radio, and A, he had no idea what had happened, and B, he sounded completely coherent. Uh, the, the, the difference in the voices between when they were up at altitude suffering from hypoxia and down at altitude, it was really remarkable. So I encourage everybody to go to YouTube and, and Google Coletta hypoxia, and the video comes right up. And a million and a half people have listened to it. So it's it's definitely a well-known event. And now a word about our recently added new sponsor, Just Soaring. These guys are doing an all-new glider simulator cockpit for you Condor pilots out there that I think you're really going to be excited about. This sim rig was designed from the ground up with glider flight controls like flaps that have multi-position detents, a spring-loaded spoiler mechanism, landing gear lever, and flight controls laid out where you expect them to be in your cockpit. Built with super strong 8020 T-slot aluminum, which will not only hold up well, but will also allow for accessorization and customization over time. Designed by Glider Pilots for Glider Pilots, their mission is to design, engineer, and globally distribute a truly best-in-class, very affordable performance glider sim cockpit. They plan to start taking pre-orders sometime in the next couple months, and they're looking at first shipments to be in spring of 2021. And yes, while they are a U.S. company, they plan to have warehousing in Europe to support that market as well. If you're thinking about upgrading your Condor cockpit, you might want to check these guys out first at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. You can reach out to them via their website with any questions. And thanks again to Just Soaring for supporting the show. If you'd like to be a sponsor or know someone that might, please drop us a line. So have you heard any other stories about hypoxia that in your line of work? 
Um, when we talk about hypoxia, you know, we we're typically think about it in terms of high-performance aircraft, um, pressurized aircraft, turbocharged aircraft, you know, the, the Payne Stewarts, uh, those types of instances, the TBM 700s that, that suffer, you know, from a, from a uh, loss of pressurization. You know, there's been a, a couple of those over, over you know, early in the, in the history of the aircraft. So, so we typically think about it in, in terms of those catastrophic events or a rapid decompression you know, we hear about time of useful consciousness up at altitude, but really the more insidious and more relevant, I think, for us type of hypoxic event is one that you don't even realize. So if you land and you've got a headache or you're kind of foggy or you go home and you, you know, take a two-hour nap, you know, chances are you are hypoxic. And hypoxia accumulates over time. So if you're up at, say, eight or 9,000 feet and you're up there for three or four hours, you definitely will become hypoxic. Uh, as opposed to just being up there for a shorter period of time. So those are the events that you don't hear about. But what I do recommend people do is, they, they, I don't know if you've ever studied the ASRS reports, the Aviation Safety Reporting System. But if you go onto the ASRS and you search on hypoxia, there are a surprising number of events where somebody has been up at altitude, a moderate altitude, you know, below the mid-teens. And, you know, on landing, they cross a whole short line or they do something that they shouldn't. And they realize that they're suffering from hypoxia. So, you know, the last thing I think any of us want to be doing is coming into a, the pattern or, you know, flying into a, a busy thermal, not being at 100%. That's what we're trying to do in terms of our messaging is just raising awareness that this is not a 12-5 phenomena. This is not time of useful consciousness. This is a pilot, honestly, a pilot like me who in a 134, you know, maybe up at eight, eight or 10,000 feet for a couple of hours that, you know, even though we're not doing wave flying, we probably could benefit from a little, having a little bit of onboard oxygen. You know, the, we have tanks that are relatively pretty small, pretty lightweight, you know, can last a, a, quite a few hours and, you know, just a, a quick burst every once in a while, monitoring your SpO2 with your pulse oximeter will, uh, you know, will we'll keep you safe and keep you, keep you alert seems like it's such a small fix to let you know, hey, your altitude, you know, this is starting to affect you. You need to get down. Yeah. And, and now they're so low cost and so ubiquitous that our, our recommendation, my recommendation is that every pilot have one in their flight bag. I've got one, two, I've got three of them in my flight bag. Because uh, you know why? Honestly, because I give them away. I, you know, if, if I'm with somebody and, you know, they're, they're, I'm doing a checkout with them in a 182 or something, you know, say, hey, you know, here you go. Here's a, here's a gift. <laughs> Uh, because it's that important. Because if you don't know what your pulse oximetry is, you don't know whether or not you need oxygen. I check it on the ground. I check it before I fly uh, just to kind of get a nominal reading. So it may be at 97%. Uh, and then when I'm up at altitude, I'll check it. And, you know, typically I'm in the 92 to 94% at the altitudes I fly. Not a big deal. Um, but if I go up, uh, you know, down here, if you've got to climb up over some cumulus or you know, the Tampa class Bravo or whatever, you know, you'll be up at eight, eight to 10,000 feet. And I'll, I'm checking my pulse oximetry every half hour, 20 minutes. You know, I was, I think I had mentioned it to you before, but I'd only soloed once or twice and went up one day, took a flight, got a decent thermal, was up to 5,500 and then left that thermal, got another one and climbing, climbing, watching, not thinking about, not thinking about hypoxia, you know, and I get up to almost 9,000 feet, but now thinking back on that flight, I wasn't thinking about that. 
Right, and it gets back to the law of primacy because what we learn when we're student pilots is to pass the FAA written, and the FAA written says, when do I need oxygen? I need oxygen anytime more than 30 minutes above 12,500, above 14,000 all the time. And so that law of primacy, I was the same way. I was taught that, and that's what I thought, and never really thought about using oxygen. But the more that you do, you more, the more that you drill into the research, and, and I've been doing FAA safety seminars. I'm also a fast team rep. And, you know, so I've got, I've got some, this is all data driven, not only is it data driven, but it's driven by ASRS reports too, that, you know, eight to 10,000 feet, you, you should be thinking about, should I have oxygen on board? A given pilot can also be affected differently day to day, depending on what's going on. So factors such as stress, dehydration, are you a smoker, weight, you know, all of those factors, some of which can change from day to day can affect your pulse oximetry, you know, just general health, you know, if you're not feeling well. So that's why every flight you should be checking your pulse ox. And, you know, you may find hey, at 8,000 feet, I'm fine. And, you know, that's, I don't, I don't need oxygen and that's great. But, you know, if you've got any of those underlying factors, you may find that you feel much better uh, just, just having oxygen on board. And even if you're using it for the last portion of the trip, you know, it, it just, it just contributes to pilot wellness in general. And why not? You know, you might have that unforgettable flight that you normally couldn't have taken, but you had oxygen on board, so you were able to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's so. That's that's what we the messaging that we've been trying to get out to the to the pilot community is to really use pulse oximetry. And there's some great ones out there. Like I said, Ithra's got one that fits right under your headset. You it comes right up on your cell phone, uh, which is which is really cool. And and then there's ones that go on your fingertip. There's ones that go on your wrist. The key is they all have different levels of accuracy. So you may be at 97% with one and it may show 94% with another. So whatever one you use, be consistent uh, and know what it, know what your pulse oximetry is nominally on the ground. So you can kind of monitor, you're better able to monitor it out at altitude. Absolutely. Great idea. Yeah. And, and what's interesting, so is, is that you know, the, the, the really experienced pilots, the guys that are out west in, in Minden that have, you know, super high performance gliders, which I would love to do someday, you know, they've got installed oxygen systems. They're pros at using this stuff. And, and you know, with the altitudes that they're flying at, it's very obvious you need oxygen, right? That's that there's no question. Really where is, is the, the kind of the middle, that middle tier of pilot who, you know, is, is getting up to 10 to 12,000 feet who may not have an onboard oxygen system, may not have a glider, you know, at that level, or like you, you know, in your, you know, in your experience, you know, may get surprised and, and get a thermal and, and, and get up an at an altitude that he or she didn't expect, you know, that's when you want to be prepared and, and have that, have that system with you and, and have certainly have the pulse oximetry. Yeah. Cause you're just thinking about being in the thermal. You're excited. Oh, great. I'm going higher. I'm going higher, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it, it really just is a part of overall pilot health and pilot wellness. So it's nutrition, it's, it's your hydration, your oxygen level is just a, a one element of overall pilot wellness, but it's definitely something that, uh, that every, every pilot should be, should be considering. Oh, absolutely. And you've enlightened me a lot in this, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of other pilots that, you know, not that they're not safe, but especially a lot of pilots that haven't been soaring that long something that i think they'll be thinking about now oh that's good mission accomplished <laughs> exactly <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, i'm glad to hear that yeah i'm glad to hear that so what are you going to focus on in the future 
as far as your soaring? I know you've gotten into this company, so you're probably going to be pretty busy. But do you have any goals in the future as far as soaring? Um, you know, I, so I just joined Tampa Bay Soaring Society, which is a fantastic club. It's a little far away, uh, but uh, but it's a, it's a great club and great group of people to be associated with. So I'm going to try to get up there as much as I can. At some point, I would love to buy a glider. That's probably a couple of years away, but uh, but I really would love to have my own, you know, higher performance single seat glass ship. Like you said, I've, I've got other I've got other things on my mind, and, and to be able to just at least go up right now and, and just go up in the in the Grobe or the Schweitzers is is plenty for me. I just I was up a couple of weeks ago, and I was just so happy to be back up in the air in the in the glider. So really want to spend more time with the with the glider community and get involved more with the club and, and hopefully get involved in helping, you know, tow and teach and anything else that I can do. And, you know, from there, we'll take it from there. I, w- I, w- I would like to try to see if we can get a glider club going a little bit farther south, you know, the Immokalee area. If anybody's listening and wants to start a club in Immokalee, reach out to me. For right now, uh, Tampa Bay is fantastic and I'm, I'm super happy to, to be associated with it. What are they doing to help out the glider community. I always ask that, you know, sometimes people have events they do to bring the public in, make people aware of soaring, but what are they doing? Yeah. You know, I haven't been associated with them long enough to really understand uh, all of what they're doing. I know it's a, it's a really popular club. I think they've got upward of a hundred members. Uh, I believe they're hosting is it one of the senior events. So they're, they're hosting a fairly large event, the March timeframe, because I've I offered to come up and, and help tow for that. So, you know, I, I think in terms of just general involvement in the soaring community, I think Tampa Bay is, you know, certainly one of the most involved clubs on the on the East Coast. Uh, and, of course, in, you know, Soaring Magazine, you see the, the monthly uh, accomplishments that come out of the club. So uh, I, I think it's a pretty active program with a pretty active youth program. And hopefully uh, over the next couple of months is winter. We're coming into our busy season, which is great you know, I'll be able to get involved more and, and find out more about exactly what is going on. But I do believe they've got a youth program and other programs to try to encourage people to get involved in soaring. Yeah, the youth program is huge. That is the key, I believe, to a lot of these, all these glider ports, because the older guys are not getting any younger. We have to have those young people to come in, get enthusiastic about soaring and keep this thing going. Yeah, you know, when I was running Connecticut Soaring Association, we had a lot of discussion about youth programs and whatnot. It was really hard to get it going because kids today have so many different distractions in their lives, you know, whether it's sports or school or it was it was really hard to get kids to spend a day or a half a day out at the glider port. So we had some success, but it wasn't the overwhelming success that we had hoped it would be. Kids were interested but get them really dedicated to the sport was, was kind of a challenge. Where we had luck was not quite retired people, it's, uh, not the older, older generation, but, you know, guys like me, the kids were out of the house. They had a little bit of disposable income. You know, maybe they took some powered flying lessons. Maybe they were a powered pilot. But now they had a little bit of time and, uh, and, and a little bit of money, and, you know, they were able to get involved. And that's where, really where we saw our growth was kind of in that, in that generational cohort of not quite retired, but a little bit of extra free time on their hands, a little bit of extra money on their hands and something that they've always wanted to do. Yeah, that's kind of where I was when I discovered soaring. I was yeah. flew some powered when I was younger and I want to get back into flying and soaring definitely was the ticket. 
Yeah. Yeah. So the youth programs are, are important and I'm, I'm super excited about the new scholarship programs and, and stuff. But, uh, you know, in terms of like short term growth for the for the sport, you know, I, I really think it's going after the guys who may be looking at their first Porsche as an alternative. Right. I mean, because you're talking to kind of the same dollar value. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. The, to me, there's a lot more sex appeal of, you know, flying a high performance glider than, you know, a high performance car. I think that's an area where we need to focus on is making the sport you know, competing with other things that, that those people may be doing, whether it's boating or yeah something else with their disposable income. Yeah, because like you said, they're at that age where they have a little more money now and they can get into those things that they always have wanted to. Yeah, and, and they have the time. You know, they're kind of checking stuff off their, their bucket list. And so this is, a, this is a great way to learn a new skill and get involved in something that, you know, is, is an individual activity, but is still very, very socially oriented. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So as far as your soaring goes, do you have anyone you want to give a shout out to? I usually give people a chance to give a shout out to those that were influential in their aviation. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to my, uh, my all my buddies up at the Connecticut Soaring Association. Let's see. I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'm going to forget somebody and I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> but, uh, you know, John Koptenak and David McKenzie, uh, Kasha, who is our treasurer, who Came in as a uh, as a student pilot and got her uh, got her private pilot's license and hopefully she'll be getting her commercial pilot's license soon and and she she'll make a great instructor so Kasha keep going and um, Bill Kelly and Daryl Smith and there's a whole there's a whole group of people uh, Greg Dell uh, I'm, and I'm I'm sure I'm forgetting a big group of people and I apologize but uh, I miss everybody up in Connecticut. Uh, but I don't miss the two feet of snow that you're about to get. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You know, you've brought some awareness to me when it comes to oxygen, and I know some uh, other pilots out there as well, something we don't think about all the time when we're getting in our 126 or whatever ship it may be, and we're taking a little flight. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I enjoyed it. And 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 Chuck, thank you for what you're doing for the soaring community. This is uh, a great podcast. I'm glad I discovered it, and I'm glad we got a chance to connect. Thank you. Me as well. Thanks for listening. Author and glider pilot Dale Masters joins us now for another short story on soaring tales with Dale. This one's called spacewalk. It was my first unsupervised solo, which uh, if you think about it, for some people, that's the most dangerous flight. The first time they go and not having anybody supervised. And uh, I was going in a Blahnik, so I knew to secure the back seat. And I started to, but I was in such a, I was so anxious to get going. I just figured, I don't bother, nobody back there. So I did not secure the back seat. I get up and I'm flying by myself and I know nobody's watching. So I had never quite had enough fun with zero G and I spent a whole lot of time going just up and over the top and down, just floating in zero G. Felt like a little kid jumping up and down on the bed. Nobody to yell, stop that. So I get done with that, ready to kind of, I'm losing altitude because I'm not trying to soar. I'm just going up and down, up and down. So Time to get into the landing pattern, and I uh, realized one of my pedals was stuck. And I glanced over my shoulder. Sure enough, those hind uh, back seat cushions were not in the right place. So now I had to get one shoulder out of my shoulder strap 
and reach around and blindly try to fidget that cushion off the pedal so that I'd have full control, couldn't reach it. And finally I had to go even further and I wound up turned over so I'm on my show on, on on my chest on the rear panel reaching over and back down and not in control of the airplane at all. That's when we hit turbulence. So every time the, the plane took some bizarre attitude, I would just kick the stick, try to get it to reverse that. And it became a wild ride with me not strapped in, not in the seat, turbulence. That's when I finally did see where I was trying to reach. And this is so embarrassing. I had forgotten the simple fact that the cockpit is open from the front to the back. I could have removed that out of position cushion with a flick of my wrist, but I just forgot that. And it was all busy trying to go over the top to, to get back there rather than just kick it with my wrist. And so I did eventually get back into the seat and now I'm sitting on my belts, so I have to get them out. And this is a long period of nobody controlling the airplane, but I did get fixed. I think I may be the only person ever to bang his back against a canopy in flight and walk away. But I learned my lesson. I never fly without securing the back seat, ever. Thank you, Dale. And now for our soaring safety segment, we hear from glider pilot Keith Schwab talking about incident and accident reports here on Soaring the Sky. This soaring safety segment is brought to you by Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. Aerox, number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems. Your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable oxygen systems. Aerox now introduces the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. Aerox, engineered for aviators. You know, the thing I noticed, as I'm a newbie, right, and I, I think I'll probably always consider myself a newbie in this, in this area, uh, there's been people flying their whole life. They have significant aviation careers. You know, I, I, I really enjoy it, but I, I'm always learning from these guys, so I don't know a lot. So I, I would read um, the FAA reports of glider accidents, and then I would go talk to some of the more senior people around me who are more, much more experienced, and they would say things like, oh, yeah, the FAA guys don't understand at all why this glider crashed, and their report is largely useless, and did you realize this, and did you realize that? I was like, no, I had no clue. And, and so it's like the, the, the more experienced people know clearly that the reports are not particularly useful. So one of the things that I've seen is that in the mountaineering community, they publish a book every year that summarizes the accidents of the year. And, you know, you, you read them and some of the accident reports are really detailed and you can get really good information about how people get hurt what the mistakes were, what was avoidable, what was unavoidable, what's the chain of bad decisions that were made, what good decisions were made, the whole thing. So what occurred to me was that what I would love to see, and this is just kind of a shout out to the soaring community in the States here, and I think it would be you know fine internationally or whatever, but let's say here in the US, I would love to see a group of senior soaring pilots, five or six, 
Look at the crashes, the accidents that have happened in the last year or two. Pick one or two accidents. It doesn't have to be every single one, you know, because it gets exhaustive. But pick one or two where you actually can understand what's happened and do a detailed write-up of what happened. What are the lessons to be learned? What can be taught? What was avoidable? What was unavoidable? A deep dive into one or two. And so you can imagine if this was done long term, you have a pile of teaching material. Here's what happened here. Here's the bad decision was made. This person overflew a landable site and proceeded on to a non-landable place. Things like that. I would love it. I think the community would greatly benefit. I, I think um, really looking into the accidents and writing some reports uh, would be beautiful. I would love to see that. Thank you, Keith. If you want to hear our entire chat with him, you can check him out on episode 50 here on the podcast. For our Just Soaring Tips and Techniques segment, we're going to catch up with glider pilot Dennis Lennigan right now as he shares with us what it's like flying the ridges of the Appalachians to big thermals west of the Mississippi and mountain wave and convergence in California. Yeah, they were all challenging in their own ways. Uh, you know, flying the ridge down down the Blue Ridge out of uh, Newcastle or Mifflin, that is unbelievable racing. Uh, when you're down on the ridge on a good ridge day with five of your buddies going south and then, uh-oh, here come five of your buddies coming north on the same ridge. Yeah, love the ridge soaring up there in the Appalachians and then the mountain soaring in the west. Loved the unbelievable thermals, uh, you know, west of the Mississippi like Uvalde and well, Uvalde is just an unbelievable soaring spot. And now I'm learning more out here at the Williams Soaring Center. Uh, they do a lot of convergence flying uh, where the Pacific air mass meets the valley air mass of, of the Sacramento Valley. And uh, a lot of energy is released when those two air masses meet. And you can use that convergence line fly some pretty long cross countries doing that, but I'm a neophyte at that. I'm, I'm back to square one almost on that. But that's what I love about flying. Any segment of flying, you're always learning. Thank you for hanging out with us for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky. Happy second birthday to the podcast today as we launch this episode. We started this journey in January of 2019. It has been an amazing ride for us and hopefully you as well. You have helped us build the number one soaring podcast on the planet. So pat yourself on the back for that. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here. So please continue to tell your friends at the Glide Report about what they are missing and tune in. And we will strive to continue to bring you more great interviews and lots of great soaring content in the future. So stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.